Welcome to the Exposing Mold podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Last episode, Eric Johnson introduced us to his theory of the effect. This is the underlying theory that connects overarching environmental components to the toxic behavior of microbes like fungi. Eric, would you do a brief reiteration of the effect and then move on to sharing how you think the mechanisms of action work in the effect of your theory? Around the uh, colonies of toxic mold, there seemed to be an almost radiomimetic effect where it was acting more like heat or light or radiation than an actual chemical substance. It almost uh, seemed like there was a range where this effect on the nervous system would extend out for a couple feet and then drop off sharply. And when I thought about what nanoparticles are capable of with their surface energy, it, um, it seemed to me that this might be some kind of electrostatic effect that would um, be concentrated if it's true that mold can collect, condense, and emit nanoparticles. There could be a high density of basically what are like miniature capacitors, tiny little microscopic batteries that are all discharging, filling the air with electricity, and then basically zapping your nervous system out to a certain range beyond which you step out of it and all of a sudden you feel okay. The um, nanoparticles, the silver iodide that was described to us during the Lake Tahoe outbreak was said to act as a supernucleator by its electrostatic affinity for attracting molecules, for getting particulates and condensation to stick to each other until the particle becomes large enough to collapse and as it falls through the atmosphere, attract more moisture until it falls to the ground in the form of snow. And the um, thing that makes the magic happen is the surface energy of the nanoparticle, where the density of this metal, this noble metal, the uh, silver, reaches a point where the ratio of its very small size to its surface area, um, its density to its surface area, becomes so narrow that there's not enough surface area for this energy to dissipate. So it becomes highly oxidative, highly volatile, and has this electrostatic affinity. Now, silver isn't the only thing that does this. In fact, plastic or silica, anything that reaches the nanoscale, when it reaches that density ratio, density to surface area ratio, it will start to exhibit the properties of a nanoparticle. Now, one of the great things in nanomedicine about the way gold nanoparticles can be used to bust up and kill cancer tumors is that they'll take these gold nanoparticles that are right on the verge of being highly oxidative, introduce them into the blood, and they attach a, a ligand, a uh, protein, has a, a special attach point to where it will go into the cancer tumor, lock in place, and when enough of these gold nanoparticles are embedded in the tumor, they bombard it with radio frequencies and excite the electrons that are spinning around the nanoparticle. All the surface energy, it's composed of all these spinning electrons and the radio frequency will cause them to spin faster and faster, excite the molecules to the extent that it becomes white hot and kill the cancer tumor, which is absolutely terrific when it's doing this when you want it to. 
But what about atmospheric nanoparticle pollution that we haven't accounted for? Isn't it conceivable that some of these nanoparticles that we aren't monitoring are getting into our lungs, into our blood, maybe into the brain, and being excited by radio frequencies such that we become electrohypersensitive, respond to these fields, and doctors can't figure out why because they see no mechanism for it. But if you understand the properties of nanoparticles, simply how they're used in nanomedicine is one example of how they operate to get white hot and kill a cancer tumor. If this could be happening at a low level, is it not conceivable that people could be walking around like walking antennas for radio frequencies? They blame the um, electromagnetic frequency by itself without thinking of how a nanoparticle could create this situation. And anytime it, at a low level that these electrons, the valence electrons and nanoparticles start to spin, would this attract immune attention? I mean, something's going wrong here. You've already got the surface energy that approximates that of a virus. So it seems conceivable that something that's right on the verge of being a nasty virus already, if you excite it even more, it's got to capture the attention of the immune system and at the very least divert the immune system from doing what it would normally be doing. So perhaps that's why so many people are lighting up with viral infections because the uh, portions of the immune system that should be surveilling for these normal viruses are off chasing a nanoparticle looking for a virus that they can never find because no matter how many macrophages and immune elements you throw at this metallic particle, it's indestructible. It's not biodegradable. The macrophage will try to engulf it. The macrophage will die. It'll send out signals of distress, recruiting more macrophages, more immune elements to come attack it and never succeed because that nanoparticle is going nowhere. We have no mechanism to remove it. And as Dr. Gotti says, at this point, we don't know any way to deal with these nanoparticles other than avoidance. Yeah, and it was quite concerning to hear her say that when she was examining pathological tissues of various different organs, that she was finding a conglomerate uh, amount of these nanoparticles embedded in these tissues because, like you said, they had nowhere to go. She's found this in sudden infant death syndrome. Yeah, and I, I can't wait to see her research coming out on mystery diseases. And, and I, that is one uh, that she is currently studying. Now, what is extremely alarming and concerning is that we are starting to see these studies come out that nanoparticles are you know, affecting the body in various ways, causing the blood to thicken, could cause heart damage and such. And we're just pumping this out of uh, industry. You know, it, it, these nanoparticles are being put in uh, mineral, beauty, cosmetics, electronics, textiles. And yeah, they do occur naturally in, in volcanic matter, but we're pumping them into things that we're buying every day, you know, our sunscreens, and we're seeing it now used in vaccines. Now you're actually starting to understand, well, we understand that you're, you're seeing these cases after these people get these different vaccines with this technology, these highly reactive responses. Famous reporter just died the other day because of a blood clot. What scares me is the future here. And if we don't 
take notice of what we're doing or figure out some kind of mechanism of how can we actually get this out of the body, we're kind of fucked in a way. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, we're fucked. And when um, tests were done for um, vaccines, which carry nanoparticles as immune adjuvants, a syndrome showed up, a new disease entity called CARPA, Complement Activation Reaction Pseudo-Allergy, where the immune system has been inspired to an anaphylactoid over-response going into total anaphylaxis for unknown reasons. Now, the immune system will normally respond to immune adjuvants such as aluminum by a heightened degree of immune surveillance. It'll put the T cells on high alert. But this goes beyond that, where perhaps a nanoparticle of a specific size and shape strikes the immune system as being so dangerous that we get a systemic cytokine cascade, a completely out of control over response, which doesn't inspire an antibody response because what it's trying to detect, it's somewhere in between an antigen and a chemical. It's a surface energy. It's something unknown to the body. It's a foreign object. It's basically a pathogen activated molecular pattern that is very similar to a virus, but it's not a virus. And the more it tries to attack, the more the body realizes that it's not getting rid of this thing. And what could one expect but autoimmune diseases and a completely out of control cytokine response. And that's exactly what, what they're seeing in CARPA. And because it's not measured by antibody responses, the primary mechanism for examination of CARPA is cardiological, cardiopulmonary responses, because the cardiovascular system will go into complete shock and it's the sudden surge in what the body's trying to do to compensate for the loss of oxygen, for the systemic anaphylaxis that reveals this syndrome. So until they start looking into CARPA, complement activation reaction pseudo-allergy, I don't think they'll be you know, close to understanding why people have these adverse reactions to vaccine and a somewhat similar reaction to these mold plumes that I'm talking about. Eric, do you think my oven experience could have been a CARPA reaction, what you were discussing? Very much so. Should I tell the story? Sure. So we had we had moved to a new house and I didn't have any water damage here and the house felt clear when we were here, when we were viewing it, when we chose the house. And then after we had moved in, sometime after maybe two weeks, I noticed that there was like a toxic zone similar to how I feel when I'm in mold and I have to leave, like emergency. The symptoms are my heart hurts, it, it starts going faster, I have pain, I feel like I can't breathe, like I can inhale, but I'm not getting any air. I feel panicky, like emergency, I need to run away. And I feel burning, physical heat, fire burning, so much so that it actually has completely burned my face to a sunburn crisp before. And it was very precise to one zone in my kitchen where if I stood in this zone between the dishwasher, sink, refrigerator, and oven in this little rectangle here, I felt maybe a level two. But if my oven was on and I was cooking, it felt like a level 10. And I felt like I was getting massive mold hits and I couldn't figure out from what, and it was only when I was cooking. And I couldn't find mold anywhere. There was a cabinet sitting next to it 
And my mom had come over for a visit and she, you know, there was a stain. There was a stain that had gotten on my radar that maybe something had spilled there and maybe we should remove this cabinet in case mold had grown into the wood board, even though you couldn't see any visible growth. She stuck her head in there and identified that she could smell a mold smell, even though I physically couldn't detect it. And we did remove the cabinet out of the house, which made the zone die down. Now, it didn't go down to zero immediately. It seemed to phase out over a couple of days. But after a few days, I could actually use my stove without feeling like I was in a death zone. And that was the experience that helped me wrap my head around the fact that actually mold can behave more aggressively in different situations. Is this experience something that's like a good example to kind of explain what you're talking about with how nanoparticles and mold behave and also the carpal reaction? Yes, that's a perfect example. And um, now I'd like to make it clear that I'm not a physicist <laughs> and I'm just a desperate person trying to find a logical explanation for these situations. And doctors have offered us nothing. They just say it's all in our head they're not even looking. They don't even believe that zones like this or reactions like this exist. So this kind of inspires me to take sort of a desperate leap at what might possibly be happening here. And when I look at this from the perspective of the nanoparticle theory, I would say that activating your oven was causing the electrons of the nanoparticles that were being processed by the mold, even under the paint, to spin a little bit faster, to act a little bit weird, dissociate, to cause some of these nanoparticles to split apart, zoom out, create this zone, and be more bioavailable, more energetic, because of the, the activation of the oven. Because we notice a lot of times that when we shut off the oven, this effect will die back down again. It's not affecting us as much. So clearly the charging of the, the particle has some, some kind of effect, but it's not just the electromagnetic field of the appliance itself. Something about moving the mold in and out of that zone does something. But what is it? How is it the, the combination of the mold and the EMF field interfacing in such a way as to set up the zone? Well, I believe that it all comes down to the valence electrons that as these nanoparticle clusters accumulate, they, they form aggregates, and the ones on the periphery, they're less securely bound to the conglomerate. The ones on the edge are going to be splitting off first. So you get a progressive release by this charging that causes a continuous stream of these nanoparticles to come out and help create this zone that is then removed by taking a contaminated object away. Now, I just had an experience this morning before coming on the computer here. Same kind of thing. I was working on my computer. Everything's fine. I'm in a safe zone. I, I trust this area. I haven't had plumes come in and affect me. But all of a sudden, I'm reacting to my computer. What is it? For a while there, I thought perhaps maybe something had come in from further away, or maybe I'm just detoxing, having an off day. And then I realized that I had brought something into my environment, and my problems had started precisely then. And it was just one newsletter, still wrapped in this plastic, not even open, but something, you know, it seemed to be here. So I removed that, got instant relief, that burning sensation, 
the uh, brain compression, the cardiopulmonary effects, the uh, heart palpitations vanished immediately. The removal of that one object caused my the zone around my computer to stop affecting me instantly. Now, to me, that's fascinating. Now, I may be totally crazy, and my theory might be completely wrong, but at least it's a theory, and it beats the heck out of being told I'm crazy. At least it's based on actual scientific principles of how nanoparticles do behave. I think a common question that would come up with this is the EMF sensitivity, because there is another doctor, you would probably remember his name, that actually explains this in a different way that you, you fundamentally disagree with, that mycotoxins are, are amping up the... Well, I should let you explain it so I don't say it wrong. What is the other theory about EMFs, how they are affecting us, and how does your theory vary? Dr. Dietrich Klinghardt monitored somebody who did um, an experiment with putting mold mold samples in a uh, Faraday cage, which meant they were protected from electromagnetic waves, and that mold acted fairly normal. And then exposing normal mold, according to this blog, to um, just the uh, frequencies from a router, a Wi-Fi router, as far as I know, no special equipment was used in this test. But according to this one blog, it caused the uh, mold to increase toxin production 600-fold. 600 times. Now the claim is that the radio frequencies like cell towers and Wi-Fi, that it pisses off the mold in a lullopathic response. Basically the mold senses a competitor and is stimulated to increase its secondary metabolite production to ward off this threat. Well, first of all, mycotoxins are very difficult and energy exhaustive to produce. It's not easy the mold doesn't even bother to produce mycotoxins without stimulation. So we know it takes a lot of effort. It is probably not even possible for a mold to increase its toxin production 600 times over what it is normally capable of. Now, he said they, these were toxins were 600 times stronger. Now, I don't know how he measured that, but what I'm fairly certain of is that it wasn't stimulated into an allelopathic response. Whatever he was sensing or however they determined this, I feel it's more likely that it felt more powerful because of this nanoparticle effect. I think if you were to measure the actual toxicity of mold that has been exposed to radio frequencies, you will not detect additional toxin production. You won't find a massive increase because if you did, not only would that be easily detectable by the, the normal testing that they're doing to measure mycotoxins, but when you put up a cell tower in the neighborhood and all the mold were to produce 600 times more powerful toxins, there would be death zones and we're not seeing it. So I feel that it's more than likely a combination of nanoparticles that we've got inside us that we've accumulated over the years that are being stimulated by these, these electromagnetic zones and the additional exposure that we sense over and above that is what happens when you expose toxic mold and nanoparticle aggregates to frequencies which allow some of the peripheral nanoparticles to branch off, spread out, and become bioavailable. And that's when it strikes us with this carpet type reaction. There'll be a short quiz in the morning.
Thank you, Eric. I, you're, you're just great. Um, but, you know, what's so fucking concerning is that you understand this. You explained it and you made it just very clear on what is happening. And just without regard, we're rolling out, you know, 5G, which is a heightened level of EMFs. And on top of that, in response to climate change, we understand that our grid is, is wavering in the wind right now, our electrical grid, solar flares, uh, adverse climatic reactions, things that are happening in the environment. And Biden proposed to strengthen this grid. So I'm thinking, what is it that you're going to do to strengthen this grid? Are you going to supercharge our electrical outlets? We're, we're starting to do this shift to electrical vehicles. So in my mind, people like us who are sensitive to this stuff already, what in the hell is going to happen? I almost feel like, shit, I'm walking into a, a future where I'm going to be, everywhere I go, I'm going to be having some sort of allergic reaction to this kind of stuff. So in a way, it's like, how do us chemically sensitive people or just sensitive people in general, how the hell are we going to navigate this future of electricity? that's gonna keep increasing around us. We already see the signs of it all around us. People who are forced to live by their senses. We can't rely on tests. The doctors can't uh, give us any answers. And even if they had a test, it can't provide us with real-time information for exposures like the oven or this newsletter that I came into contact with. We have to learn to understand this phenomenon and live by what we can feel. and. As Dr. Gotti pointed out, they're using silver nanoparticles as a disinfectant and antimicrobial in clothing. My God, it was bad enough they're putting it in the atmosphere and now it's winding up in clothing. So she also described the surface energy effect where people are probably going to be more responsive to these electromagnetic frequencies and 5G is a very powerful one. So people are gonna start complaining about it. And specifically, they're gonna start pointing at their clothing. Now, I don't know about American Airlines, yeah, just since we were talking about it, American Airlines had a really catastrophic event recently with their uniforms affecting people. The flight attendants were all getting sick from their uniforms. Now, as far as they can test, they say, yeah, these, these had chemicals, but not at a level that should have been giving people the rashes, the skin burning, the blisters, the headaches, the neurological problems. It was completely incapacitating. It was a devastating thing to these flight attendants and it went unexplained because they can't find a mechanism for it. Whereas it looks like the nanoparticle phenomenon dovetails quite nicely with this and explains the whole thing. And we're gonna be seeing a lot more of it. Yeah, and, and that's major, a major, major problem because they are pushing now nanomedicines. You know, we found a revolutionary idea to, you know, kill cancer cells and all this stuff and not thinking about the repercussions. You know, if we start developing these therapeutic nanomedicines, the result is going to be extremely, extremely interesting, you know, and it might lead to exactly what you said, more people being reactive. Look at the, um, the pegylated lipid nanoparticle used in the COVID vaccine and read more about how they're using lipid nanoparticles, it's very clearly understood that a nanoparticle in order to perform its function and then depart the body without causing permanent harm, it has to be biodegradable. It cannot be metallic because we cannot break these down. So 
nanomedicine, it is clearly understood that metallic nanoparticles do create long-term harm. There's no question about it. All we're proposing is that there are atmospheric nanoparticles like the silver iodide that are not being accounted for. And all they're looking for is the good aspect and completely ignoring the danger. And what's interesting is when you went through the Tahoe mystery malady and your observations of the environment and how these silver nanoparticles that were being used by the Desert Research Institute and the ski resorts to obtain more snow was causing some sort of chaos within the environment there. The algae bloom was coming up. The crayfish were dying, the fish were dying, the frogs disappeared, the trees. So this has a systemic effect. It's not just that we're reserving it to humans. This is a systemic problem that is harming the environment. And we're seeing that a lot across the globe with cyanobacteria, algae blooms popping up everywhere. Right, the ramifications ripple through the entire ecosystem. You know, it started with the effect on the microbes causing them to produce different kinds of toxins, changing the microbe the balance in favor of the more aggressive, stronger microbes. I mean, the concept is clearly understood that the strong will survive. So if you wipe out the weaker ones, you're going to get the more aggressive toxic ones. And when you look at the algae blooms happening all over the place, they're blaming on agricultural runoff, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe the increased nanoparticle pollution is doing the same thing that I suspected during the Tahoe outbreak and favoring the more aggressive cyanobacteria. And we're getting stronger toxins all over the place as we're seeing in Florida right now. Dr. Shoemaker in his book, Desperation Medicine, talked about the danger of copper-based fungicides. And in every case, the um, culprit gets diverted over to nitrogen, to you know agricultural runoff, when really, even in areas that had such runoff, they weren't known to produce such powerful toxins. So we really need to start rethinking what we're blaming here and looking for a deeper problem with these metallics that we've introduced into the environment. Yeah, I really hope that from the grace of the universe that we're able to somehow pull some funds together privately so we can start testing this stuff because these concepts are so new and radical that if you go to someone or, or an institute, they're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? You know, or if you as a person that's suffering and you try to tell your doctor and explain this concept to them, they're going to look at you and say, you're hysterical. In the meantime, until people start taking note that this is an issue, those that are suffering, those that are mold injured, you have to play it smart in your life going forward. And you have to dip and dodge these areas where you feel unwell and be intuitive and trust how you feel because that essentially is the only way that you're going to survive as Eric has been demonstrating his entire life. He's been doing this. So that's our advice to you. All right. Well, thank you again, everyone for joining us today. It's always great information to, um, you know, learn and understand. And it just seems like, again, Eric is this walking history book slash encyclopedia. He just knows everything. <laughs> and uh, we're just very grateful for his knowledge because um, I feel like for those of us that are suffering, we're one step to a solution and one step to just 
completely understanding and conceptualizing what's happening to us because a lot of us don't understand and we die not understanding. So this is really enlightening. Again, we are going to be bringing on some awesome guests. I mean, we secured a lot of great people. Um, we got a microbiologist, we got some environmental doctors, um, we have some celebrities coming up, we have an investigative journalist coming up. So if you guys are interested thus far, stay tuned because we have a lot of incredible information coming up. So again, as I always say, please like, share, comment, subscribe, rate our content. I just checked Apple Podcasts the other day and we have five ratings of five stars. Hey, that means we're doing good. And so I'm just extremely ecstatic and just full of energy and full of passion working on this day and night, constantly bugging Keely and Eric all throughout the night with all my questions or sending them articles or me researching. I am literally pouring my heart and soul into this just as Keely and Eric are. And we are extremely passionate about you guys. So please donate to our GoFundMe and Patreon pages so we can keep this going. Because as you know, mold has completely taken everything away from us. So, so we're definitely gonna be using these funds for good for this podcast to keep it running and keep it going. So again, we will see you guys next week. Bye.